This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're looking this morning at verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that as we come into your presence now to study your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Father, we pray that you would fasten minds that are prone to wander on your word, on your truth this morning. And Father, more importantly, fasten hearts that are prone to wander on Christ, on the adoration of our Savior, and on the truth about the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that a person who has a Bible that is falling apart, usually has a life that isn't. Why is that? Well, the Bible certainly is a remarkable book with a variety of types of writing that it includes for the length of time over which it was written, some 1,600 years, a number of authors, uh, some 40 different authors who contributed to Scripture's human authors, a book that has been translated into over 2,000 languages, a book that is a perennial bestseller, most published book, History, remarkable book. But the Bible is more than remarkable. The Bible is unique. Uh, Unique is one of those words that does, does not admit of degrees. Something can't be very unique. It either is unique, one of a kind, or it's not unique. The Bible is unique. There is No other book like it, not only because of all of the fascinating facts about it, some of which I have just mentioned, but the most outstanding fact about the Bible, the thing that makes it unique, is the Bible is God's book. It's the book that God wrote, the book that God gave 
to us. And what do we mean by that, that it is God's book? Well, I mean exactly what Paul writes here in 2 Timothy in our text this morning to his his disciple Timothy. And these two verses may be the single most important text in the Scripture for understanding the nature of the Bible itself. There are others as well, of course. But this may be the single most defining, most clear, concise statement that the Bible makes about itself. And if we're going to come to a conclusion about the Bible, we need to do so by submitting our minds to what the Bible says about itself. We say that the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, our ultimate rule, our ultimate guide in matters of of belief, faith, as well as in life, practice. So we would be inconsistent if we say, well, the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice, and yet we come to our own conclusions and, and formulate our own thinking for ourselves about what the Bible itself is. If the Bible is our ultimate rule for faith and practice, then that means that we need to listen to what the Bible says about itself and learn from it what it says about itself. So what does the Bible say about itself? Well, these two verses are critical for that understanding. Now, before we actually look into these verses themselves, we do well to remind ourselves of the context. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he has encouraged Timothy about certain things in himself, his background, his upbringing, his faith, his family, And in verse 15, he commends Timothy how from childhood he has been acquainted with the sacred writings, with the scriptures, which, Paul says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The reason Paul even brings up what he does in in verses 16 and 17 is this reference to Timothy, that throughout his life he's known the scriptures which are able to instruct us, to instruct him and to instruct us in salvation, which is found through faith in Christ Jesus. And that statement is important because it reminds us that the entire Bible has as its, as its scope to tell us about Jesus. The Old Testament preparing the way, foreshadowing the, the, prophetic ministry of Jesus and declaring the word of God, the kingly ministry of Jesus as our king, uh, his, his uh, priestly work, uh, in Jesus' case, the one offering the sacrifice and who is himself the Lamb of God who dies on the altar for our sins, the altar of the cross. And then the Gospels, of course, tell us of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts speaks of the beginnings of the New Covenant Church. The letters of Paul and others explain to us the meaning of, of who Christ is and what he did and how that applies it to us in our lives and in the church and in this world. And of course, it ends with Revelation, which points to Christ's victory uh, over this world, over evil that is allied against him and against his church. And uh, in short, the message is we win. We win in and, and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as our VBS song says, they all point to Jesus. The stories, the lessons, the lives that we find in Scripture ultimately come together to point us to Christ 
to tell us about who he is, to call us to repentance and faith in him, to be right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in that context, the end of verse 15, where Paul says the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, then that we understand verses 16 and 17. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us the Bible. But the Bible is unique. It is the book in which God reveals his grace, his plan of salvation to us. Just as creation declares to us the glory of God, and as Romans says, tells us enough to condemn us, leave us without excuse, but not enough to save us. The Bible tells us what we need to know to be saved. So with that in mind, then let's dig into verses 16 and 17, where Paul goes on to talk more about the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? Well, here it tells us something about the source of the Bible, where it came from. It tells us the uses of the Bible. And then finally, it tells us the goal of the Bible. So first of all, let's think about the source of the Bible. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out. By God. So what does Paul mean when he says breathed out by God? Well, before we think about that, we need to think about what he means when he says all scripture. What's he pointing to? Uh, Our minds might immediately think, well, our Bibles, of course. But you have to remember all Paul had in his time was the Old Testament. Now, certainly we could say that at the very least, Paul has in mind the Old Testament. He's pointing uh, to the Old Testament. By the way, before we, we move on, when we read all Scripture is God-breathed or is inspired by God, however your translation uh, reads, there are some translations that render it all, all inspired Scripture is profitable. And grammatically, it could, it could read that way. But that almost doesn't make sense. Uh, one, it doesn't fit the context really very well, but it also seems to imply there's non-inspired scripture, which is a contradiction in terms. Uh, so you may see that, and that grammatically it could read that way. All inspired or all, all God-breathed scripture is profitable, um, but it seems more natural in the context to read it the way uh, God breathed for you grammarians being a predicate adjective. All scripture is God breathed. Well, of course, the scriptures for a Jew would refer to the Old Testament and uh, certainly could refer to that. Paul, as well as other writers in the uh, in the New Testament, including Jesus himself, not a writer, but a character in the New Testament, the center of the New Testament, quotes the Old Testament as authoritative. Right. It's the word of God. They quote from the Old Testament. This is this is God speaking. What about the New Testament? What about when we come to the New Testament? Is that included? Well, Paul never refers to his own letters as scripture, but he comes close sometimes. He he recognizes their authority. For example, Colossians 4.16 Paul says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. In 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He claims the authority of Christ for his words, for his therefore his letters. 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, Commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 
2 Corinthians 13.3. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul commends the Thessalonians because they received his words and the other apostles not as the words of men, but as the word of God. Now, there's another fascinating reference along these lines to Paul's letters that is not made by Paul himself, but made by Peter. You see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, near the end of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter speaks of Paul's letters. It's interesting, you kind of have this cross-reference in the New Testament where Peter acknowledges the letters that Paul writes. And notice what he says. Paul speaks of, of salvation in Christ according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. Interesting to note, Peter probably was reading some of the same letters of Paul that we read. Notice what he says, though. Peter says, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. And he probably got several amens on that one. Uh, it's encouraging to know even Peter thought some of what Paul wrote was difficult. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, Peter goes on to say, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, Peter doesn't say that they twist them to their destruction the same way they do the scriptures. That word other is vital. Because when Peter says that they twist Paul's letters to their own destruction, the same way they do the other scriptures. By that word other, he is placing Paul's letters on par with the Old Testament. And for a Jew, that was huge. That Peter considered the letters of Paul to be on par as scripture with the Old Testament gives us huge insight into how we should view the New Testament, the letters of Paul and by extension, certainly the rest of what we have as the New Testament. So when Paul says here, all Scripture, he is referring certainly for, for our purposes today to the Bible, to the Old and the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, as God's revelation to us of what he has done in Christ to accomplish our salvation. But where does it come from? Where does the Bible, all the New Testaments, come from? What is its source? To get back to what this point is supposed to be about. Well, Paul says it was breathed out, or it is breathed out by God. You could also translate it, God breathed, which is a good way to translate it, because it's just one word, theopneustos. It's a compound word. Theos, of course, means God, theology, uh, theocracy. Uh, God is the first part. And then pneustos, uh, which can mean air, wind, breath, spirit. Uh, pneuma is the word for, for all of those things, spirit. Um, we get our word pneumonia from it, a pneumatic tire, an air-filled tire. Uh, so theopneustos, this compound word in English, God breathed is the word that Paul uses here to refer to the nature of Scripture. Now, some translations render it inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. And that's an okay way to render it, as long as you understand what's, what's meant there. Actually, to inspire means to breathe in. Uh, we might say all Scripture is expired, uh, but that doesn't quite 
communicate what we, what we would like to say either. Uh, but inspired is okay, and we use that actually from that, the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture, uh, the doctrine of its, of its originating from God himself. So as long as we understand what we mean by that, uh, we're okay. Uh, so it, God, it, it is inspired or it is breathed, literally God breathed, breathed out by God. The point that he's making, of course, is that its source is God himself. However, the Bible didn't just fall out of heaven, written by the hand of God. It was written by many different human authors. And as you read the Bible, you recognize that, uh, that for example, Judges reads differently from Ezekiel, which reads differently from John, which reads differently from Paul, who reads differently from Peter. Uh, the, the, the way they write, the words they use, the expressions, all are part of it. Uh, which serves to make the Bible far more interesting, by the way. Uh, the expression here, or the phrase, is, is organic inspiration. That God's Spirit was at work through those who wrote the pages of Scripture, so that who they were, their personalities, their backgrounds, their education, their experiences, the problems that they wrestled with, all came out as they wrote, while all the while... It was God who was at work in them to pen exactly what he wanted written. Our New Testament reading earlier captures this perfectly. Second Peter 1 verse 21, Peter says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes God dictated Ten Commandments, for example. Sometimes God gave revelation through a dream. Sometimes uh, for example, with Paul, his letter, many of his letters are just Paul sitting down hammering out answers to their questions or hammering out solutions to the problems or the difficulties or the afflictions of the church. And yet it was God at work so that what he wrote was exactly what God wanted written. The writer of the Hebrews quotes from a psalm of David, but he prefaces it with these words, as the Holy Spirit says, which really gets the point. I love it. And just cut to the chase. This is what God says. Yeah, David wrote it, but God said it. So, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, you can't say that without recognizing there are certain implications for us, if that's true. And the Bible itself says of itself that it is so. One, it means that the Bible must be without error. Can God make mistakes? No. Is the Bible right only when it speaks to religious matters, but could be mistaken on other things? No. How do you separate religious from other things anyway? Uh, We have to recognize the inerrancy, that is, without error, uh, of the Bible. Say, well, you know, that was a long time ago. Maybe it's gotten corrupted in translation. Maybe it's gotten corrupted in, uh, in, 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 uh, in the transition of manuscript to manuscript. Well, First of all, the manuscript evidence that we have is, is superior to any other ancient document for the Bible. We have parts of the, the manuscripts of the New Testament that go back to within a hundred years of when it was first written. You can have great confidence that the text of the Bible is pretty, pretty close even today to what the original writers wrote. There may be some variations. There may be some we're not sure of this word or that word, but you can know this that those variations don't change any doctrine. They may slightly change the meaning of a single verse, uh, 
but even then within a very narrow range. So that we can have confidence in the text we have before us, and we can have confidence in our English translations. As I've said before, Paul, when he would quote the scriptures, often quoted as authoritative a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Because most of the people he dealt with did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And so Paul would quote a translation called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And he would quote it with authority. He would quote it as God's word. And we can do the same. We can quote our English translations and say, this is the word of God. So rest assured that the Bibles that we have are, are, are quite representative, uh, precisely representative of what Paul wrote, what Moses wrote, what John wrote. And we quote it the same way. It also not only speaks without error, it speaks with authority. If this is the word of God, then this is not a book that we can read and decide for ourselves whether we like it or not. Because this is God speaking. This is not uh, just a human author. This is not just more human opinion. This isn't the op-ed page of the paper. This is God speaking with authority. Uh, It does not... We do not sit in judgment on it, uh, on it, it sits in judgment on us. We don't decide if we're going to take it or leave it or conform to it. It's God's word. Why should God conform to us? We must conform to what he says. One other implication, by the way, of this expression, all scripture, Leviticus and Numbers are God's word. Now, I remember someone saying once, uh, a preaching, all scripture is inspired, but not all scripture is equally preachable. And that's true. I mean, I, I think any preacher would say, I'd much rather preach Ephesians 2 than 1 Chronicles 1, uh, the, the, the genealogies. And yet, those two are inspired by God, and those two are essential for us to understand and know. Uh, we need to know that. No, they're not as central to redemptive history, for example, as, as Romans or the uh, resurrection narratives of Christ and the Gospels, but they too are part of that all scripture. That is God breathed. God gave us Nahum as well as Isaiah because it too forms part of what we need to understand to be able to take in God's revelation of Christ in the scriptures. So just to be aware of that, uh, we may have our favorite passages, but recognize that all scripture is God breathed and there's a reason he gave it. So the source of the scriptures is no less than God himself. This is God's book given through our term organic inspiration, and it speaks without error. It speaks with authority, and so we come to it and submit to it. Second thing that this passage has to say is is about the use of Scripture. What is it for? What do we do with it? What are we to do with this book? Is it to be a uh, item of discussion on a coffee table? Is it to be a dust catcher up on a shelf? Uh, what do we do with this book called the Bible? Let's think about it. It's from God. Well, that's great. But what use is it? Well, he tells us in the second half of verse 16. He says it's profitable, that is, it's useful uh, for several things. First, he says for teaching. It's profitable for teaching. Normal word that's used in the scriptures for teaching. However, it occurs 21 times, this word does, in its different forms in the New Testament, this word for teaching. Our word didactic comes from it occurs 21 times in the New Testament. Out of 21 occurrences, 15 of them 
are in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. 15 out of 21 occur in these three short epistles. It gives you some idea of the emphasis that Paul has as he's writing to Timothy and writing to Titus about the importance of teaching God's word, teaching truth, avoiding, avoiding false teaching. So all scripture is profitable for teaching. That is, positively setting forth the whole plan of God for our salvation. What are we to do with the Bible? What use is it? What are we to teach it? Tragically, that may, may seem painfully obvious, but there are a lot of churches that don't teach the Bible. The sermons are about all kinds of things. They may read the text, but the sermon may have little, if any, connection to the text. Uh, they may talk about all kinds of things in Sunday school classes, but they don't teach the Bible, the truths of the Bible, the application of the Bible. That may seem painfully obvious, but unfortunately it's not always done. The first use of the Bible that Paul mentions is that of teaching. It is profitable for teaching. So we teach the Bible, positively setting forth what it says about God's plan of salvation in Christ. Paul goes on to say it's profitable for reproof. Now, we like teaching. Everybody likes to learn something new. Reproof, word could also be translated rebuke. That has sort of a a negative tone to it. it, and it is, in a sense, because the Scriptures are useful for confronting, for rebuking someone whose life has gone astray, whether in doctrine or behavior or frequently both. You see, it's from the scriptures that we come, the standard, this canon, this rule, and say, look, in your teaching, you have departed from what the Bible says. Or in your behavior, you are living contrary to what God's word says. Now, if, if it's just my opinion, someone could say, well, who are you to, to, to rebuke me? That's just your opinion. But when we rebuke or reprove someone from God's word, they are departing from the absolute standard. That's why, for example, in our book of church order, which has three sections, the, the form of government is the first section, how we're structured as a church. The second section is the rules for discipline. And then the third section is the directory for worship. Well, that middle section is the rules for discipline, and it addresses this whole matter of how discipline takes place in the church. And in the chapter on offenses, those things that would be reprovable, that are worthy of rebuke, it makes this statement in the BCO, Book of Church Order. Nothing ought to be considered by any court, that is a session, presbytery, or general assembly, nothing ought to be considered by any court as an offense or admitted as a matter of accusation which cannot be proved to be such from Scripture. That's an important statement because I may not like something you're doing, but if I can't come to the Scriptures and say you are violating God's word, then I, then I would not accuse you. I have no grounds to, to take issue or rebuke you for what you're doing. I may question its wisdom, but for an accusation to be brought, it has to be proved from Scripture that this truly is an offense to God and to his word. But another use of the Scripture is that as the standard for which we reprove or rebuke. Now, the third one he mentions is correction, and it's kind of the flip side of, of reproof, because we don't want to just rebuke somebody. We don't want to just confront somebody about some departure from the standard of God's word. We do want to correct. 
We want to say not this, but this. We don't want to just put off. We want to put on. So correction is another important use of God's word. Another translation could be to improve. So it's not just that we, uh, to use the, the questions we, we looked at um, this morning uh, from the Catechism, Fifth and Sixth Commandments. It's not just that you uh, don't want, for example, children to, uh, to sass, just to use that word, to sass or to badmouth your parents. You want to respect them. You want to speak well of them and speak well to them. So not just putting off this, but putting on this. Uh, the, the, the Catechism points out that the Sixth Commandment, you shall not kill or you shall not murder, uh, not only prohibits us from taking the life of another or risking the life of another, but to do all we can to protect the life of another. So the Scriptures are useful for reproof, but they're also, at the same time, for correction. Not this, but this. This is how God calls us positively to live. And then the last thing he mentions, for training in righteousness. The word training occurs six times in the New Testament. Uh, one of them is here, of course. Uh, another is Ephesians 6.4, where Paul tells fathers to bring up their children in the nurture, as the training and admonition of the Lord. So two of them were accounted for. The other four uses of this term occur in Hebrews 12. In the section on discipline, which we're looking at tonight, so I encourage you to return tonight for more of this term from Hebrews chapter 12 on God as our Heavenly Father, His discipline of us. And the word training is related to the word for child. It has to do kind of in the sense of, of training up or, 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 or rearing up our children. Uh, but it also has the sense of, of training. Uh, so as we look at this, we use the Bible not merely to inform, but to coach us, to train us in righteousness, in, in behavior that is just, that is pleasing to God. Now, these, Paul says, are uses of Scripture. And there's some overlap. They all sort of work together, but there is some distinction uh, between each two. We can dis- uh, between each of them, we can distinguish them from one another. So let me ask you a question. With those uses in mind, how are the scriptures at work in your life? How are the scriptures at work in your life? Maybe as you read it or hear it taught in Sunday school, hear it taught from the pulpit, you're learning. You're learning new things. Wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Or I didn't know that I needed to do that or not do this. Uh, Maybe you're growing in your knowledge of what the Bible says about truth and about life. Or... Maybe the Bible is at work in your life right now to rebuke and correct things in your life that are not pleasing to God, things that you need to repent of, things you need to be confronted about. There's sin in your life somewhere, and the Holy Spirit's using the Scriptures to expose it, to convict you of its sinfulness, and point you in a more God-honoring and Christ-like direction. That should be going on all the time, because we never reach a place in this life where there's no sin in us. So that's a work that's going on in every Christian all the time as God exposes sin in our lives. Maybe the scriptures are serving for you either directly or through, a, through in your meeting, someone you're meeting with or in a Sunday school class as your personal trainer coaching you in the finer points of what it means to live a righteous, Christ-honoring life. How are the scriptures at work in your life right now? Are they at work 
in your life right now? Can you point to things that God is teaching you through your own reading and through the, the preaching and teaching of others? If you have no answer to that, then you either need to increase your exposure to God's word or you need to pay attention when you are exposed to God's word. I know all of us, I think, have had the experience of sitting down to read a chapter of the Bible, for example, and you got to the end of it and you realize your eyes went over all the words, but your mind's out working on some problem that's pressing on you and you have to realize, I don't have a clue what I just read. So you go back and pay attention. So how is God's word at work in your life? And last, the Scriptures tells us in verse 17 of the goal of Scripture, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The man of God, who is that? Well, that is a technical title. You find it in the Old Testament. It's used of Moses, of David, of Elijah. It's also used of Timothy, 1 Timothy. Uh, just a couple pages over, Paul says uh, to Timothy, As for you, O man of God, and in a technical sense, it could refer to someone who's called to a position of leadership or teaching in the church in a formal way. However, the word just means the, the person, uh, and it's not specifically male. It just refers to the person who belongs to God, which would be true of any Christian. So it could be in a narrow or formal sense, but it could also refer to in a general sense, a person who belongs to God, which is you, if you are a Christian. So the scriptures are they have as their goal in doing these uses that the man of God, the woman of God, the Christian might be competent. The word means complete or capable, sufficient, might be in shape for, might be equipped for, might be trained for, as he says, every good work. That's a favorite expression of Paul's, uh, to, just referring to the things that God has for us to do. Uh, what God puts in our path, the people God puts in our path, the way he wants to use us in this world to spread the knowledge of Christ and help build his kingdom. So is the word of God at work in your life to make you competent to equip you for every good work that God puts before you? God has things he wants to do in you and through you, and you need to be in the word to be ready for it. And as you are training, training in the word and growing in the knowledge and, and uh, tr- uh, growing in righteousness, there, there's more and more ways that God can use you. Well, let me ask you this. How are you and God's word getting together? I remember uh, years ago, I had a pastor who preached a sermon called Getting a Grip on God's Word. He actually had a drawing of a hand. He talked about the different ways that we get a grip on God's word. One, of course, is by reading it. At the very least, you should be reading God's word. Uh, And there are numerous reading plans, ways of reading the Bible. Probably the worst is just random reading, although I guess it's not that's better than none at all. Uh, But even just pick a chapter a day and read through a book. Start with John. Start with Philippians, whatever it might be, and just read a chapter. And each day read a chapter. But find a way to be reading the Word, studying the Word. Uh, You do want to uh, study God's Word. Maybe look at some commentaries or Bible dictionary or some such resource. Maybe you came across something as you were reading, and I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means. Um, and you say, well, I'm going to start doing some research. And you, you look into it and then dig a little deeper. That's another way. Uh, certainly hearing God's Word is another way we get a grip on God's Word. Hearing it preached, hearing it taught in Sunday school or Bible study. 
And uh, wow, the Internet today, the opportunities uh, that don't replace being part of a congregation, but certainly can supplement uh, opportunities for hearing good preaching and teaching. Uh, are, those are further ways that we can hear God's word. Meditating on it. This is a hard one, not because it's hard, but because it takes time. It takes being still. It takes being undistracted. And if we're anything in this technological age, we are distracted. Little beeps and whistles and buzzes and vibrations going off all the time, telling us we need to do something, read an email, go somewhere. Meditation requires being calm, being still, not only in body but in mind, to think about what God's Word says, to think over ways in my life that that applies. It's not hard because it's difficult. It's hard because it requires being still, and that is extremely hard for us today. And then fifth, memorizing. It's almost a lost art. How many Christians purpose and take time just to memorize Scripture? Maybe a key verse here or there. Maybe entire passages. That takes time. That takes work. That takes review and review and review and review. It takes effort. But we do want to hide God's Word in our heart and in our mind so that it's there, so that the Spirit can bring it to mind, so that it's at work shaping the way we think and therefore shaping the way we live. How do you get a grip on God's Word? By reading it, studying it, hearing it, meditating it, memorizing it. By doing these things, it'll help us to hold fast to God's Word, which is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, increase our hunger for Your Word. Lord, that our interaction with it, whatever form that might take, would not be a chore. It would not be merely the fulfillment of obligation. It would be a delight. It would be a joy. Would be something that we look forward to, whether it's gathering with other believers, whether it's approaching the Word of God on our own. Father, cultivate in us that appetite. Father, we thank you for your Word. Thank you for how it has changed lives uh, over the centuries, over the millennia, and continues to today, and it's changing us. So, Father, we pray by your Word that you would continue that work that you have begun in us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.